Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. That's. Yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 it follows. Boom, 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 it yellow card. Nah, that's actually boring, sir. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I've got to throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? <laughs> you know, I'm starting to think maybe Rafa Benitez might not have been such a good fit for Real Madrid in the first place. Hi, Ken. Hi, Kieran. Hey, Daryl. Hey, Owen. How are you? Not bad. The press conference on Monday was so Florentino Perez. It was unbelievable. So yeah. typical of uh, Perez's way of working. No questions. Yeah. Brief couple of words about Benitez. We've taken a difficult decision, especially for me, to resolve Rafa Benitez's contract. Uh, he's a great professional, magnificent person. We wish to express our gratitude for the work he has done over these months. And that's the end of Rafa talk. That's it for Rafa Benitez at Real Madrid. Who wants to hear any more about Benitez, though, when Zinedine Bloody Zidane is standing beside Perez? Yeah. Zinedine Zidane. Um, this is your club. Zinedine Zidane is like, oh, shucks, little old me. <laughs> oh, I didn't even see it coming. Okay, well, you know, if, if you insist, I'll, I'll, I'm prepared to, to uh, take on the burden of, of carrying this job for. I mean, he's been lurking in the shadows there for quite a long time now. Zizou. Um, well, he really. seemed to be onto a really good number there. Yeah. Just hanging around Real Madrid looking for pretty like good. 20 or 30 years. Looking, looking, like, looking authoritative without anyone knowing really yeah. what he does. If, if, yeah, well, he, he works for Qatar, doesn't he? He, he? he does a lot of shilling for Qatar's mm. World Cup. He's one of the, himself, Guardiola, and you know various other legends of the game. <laughs> Draws you know, lucrative stipends from the Qatari royal family. Yeah, I mean, if, if he was looking like he was being pushed into... Stipend. stipend I would have you would have gone with stipend I would have gone with stipend hey who knows it, it's not a word it's not a word <laughs> sorry I've ruined everything it's not sorry a word, just keep going yeah it's <laughs> not a word one says too often out loud it's no, it more it's more of an imprint word print. it's true it's true yeah. Uh, but yeah I mean like if, if he looked like he didn't really fancy doing the job I would say it's because he doesn't really fancy doing the job because I mean we all know how this ends uh but this With Real Madrid sacking yeah. their greatest, uh, one of their greatest ever players. Yeah, but I mean, you know, this ambassadorial role, I mean, that's that's some easy money. I wonder will about. the filmmakers who made that movie documenting his every move on the pitch in a game against, was it Malaga or something, in 2006, I wonder would they make a follow-up, a sequel of him on the on the bench? They're already made, really. Every Actually, every Premier League game is yeah. pretty much like that now. Uh, particularly with BT Sport having their little manager watches. Uh, there probably isn't too much mystery to what City Zidane's going to do. I think David Moyes, I haven't seen it ever used as often as it was <laughs> being used when David Moyes <laughs> was about to get sacked. I mean, it was literally there for about manager 75 can. of the 90 minutes. I felt like the, your, the camera was actually going to zoom straight in on David Moyes' pale eyes and just go straight into his pupil. Yeah. Like, that was where the picture was going to go. <laughs> um yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Zinedine Zidane. I don't really know anything about Zidane. He's he's so he's he is a very. I, I can barely remember him ever saying anything. No, I can remember him doing things. A lot of great things. Um, a lot of crazy things. I saw him once in Dublin. He came when he was playing uh, for France against Ireland in two thousand five. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and there, was, we, there was a World Cup qualifier. He was like uh, he had to do the press conference, and he it was in that little. In a little house at the end of Lansdowne Road, just next to the North Terrace there. And himself, and I guess it was Dominic. It was Raymond Dominic. It would have been, yeah. yeah. Um, did the press conference. And Zidane was just there, all kind of all stubbly, kind of glaring out at everyone, not really saying a lot. Uh, and the thing, the only thing I remember, I don't remember anything he said, but I do remember at the end, or what he decided was the end, he just got up and started walking out. And someone started asking a question. And I remember Zidane sort of looking around. And 
thinking to himself, do I need to do I need to pay any attention to this? And obviously deciding, no, and just walking out. <laughs> and whoever it was just sort of had to abandon their question in midstream. Well, wasn't he essentially managing that team for a period? Uh, Taking it over during the 2006 World Cup, even previous to that, in so that qualification said, campaign, so said, yeah. uh, Zidane supposedly said, listen, lads, Vieira, Makalele, all you other guys who've retired. Uh, and me. Oh, he, Zidane he, was retired. He'd, he'd retired Sorry, as well. and he decided, and no, I'm coming back now, had a word with, this is how the story went, had a word with Vieira and the other boys, and they said, okay, sure, we may as well play for our country, yeah. even though this manager is kind of annoying. We'll do it for you, Zizou. Yeah. Uh, he sat there smoking ruminative, ruminatively. <laughs> Uh, during his, uh, you like that, didn't you? <laughs> You've recovered. He's back. Stiffened, indeed. <laughs> the telltale uh, mispronunciation of the autodidact. <laughs> uh, sorry, where are we? Uh, you were just talking about him smoking. Ah, uh, yeah, he used to smoke. Probably still does, I'd say. I mean, it's difficult to give up. So I'd say he probably still has a few. <laughs> so we know that he was a great footballer and he smokes. That's all we know about Zinedine Zan's potential to manage the biggest club in the world. A really great footballer um, with a psychotic temperament who was sent off uh, for headbutting I'm sure more than any other player I, I know repeated headbutter loads of headbutts he loved a headbutt uh, out of character the sending off that was my favourite one of my, your favourite my favourite contributions from UK after that Champions League final after that World Cup final when so many people were saying it's just out of character it's just a skillful player and he's He's ended his international, he's ended his football career headbutting a guy. Yeah. And you pointed out, well, he's been sent off 14 times. <laughs> and this is the most Zinedine Zidane thing that could possibly have happened. Yeah. No one would have thought to do a headbutt like that. No one had, most people hadn't seen a headbutt like that to, to someone's chest. chest. Yeah. That was, it showed his creativity and also his uh, psychotic aggression. It was an archetypal Zidane moment. It even made its way onto a Family Guy sketch. Did it? Yeah. Stewie says something like, oh, this is worse than the time. You got a, a birthday greeting from Zinedine Zidane. The next thing, it flashes back to a, a doorbell ringing. Zinedine, it's like the Zidane 10 in the French jersey standing outside. I think it must have been Peter Griffin opens the door and uh, Zidane says, Bon anniversaire, and then headbutts him in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> Puts him straight down. Puts him down. The way, the way Matarazzi fell was so great as well because he, he rotated like 90 degrees. So his, he was almost completely horizontal in the air and then he fell fell to the ground it was spectacular it looked, made it look much more powerful than than it realistically could have been I mean how hard can you headbutt someone like that you know I don't know I, I've never been headbutted like that so thankfully well we'll talk to Sid Lowe about Zidane in a little uh, Zidane I should say in a little while let's get into your report on sport so where do we start I Liverpool's guess Liverpool's injuries yeah I mean this is this is the big thing at the moment let's start with Jurgen Klopp because Jurgen Klopp finds himself under attack on two fronts it's an unholy alliance uh, there is that famous quote from Winston Churchill uh, once uh, um, you know one of the world's most feverish opponents of Soviet communism uh, this plague bacillus that has been loosed on the uh, plains of holy Russia. Um, this rabid uh, beast of Soviet communism which threatens to devour Europe. And all this. But he basically spent the entire 20s and 30s going on in that, uh, in that style. And then suddenly when it turned out that uh, Germany invaded the Soviet Union, he changed his tune, see? <laughs> suddenly it was Uncle Joe, right? <laughs> Uncle Joe in, in the Kremlin. You know our gallant ally, and people people have actually said, Winston, seriously, you know we've we've been here, we've heard a lot of stuff from you over the years about about the communists threatened. Suddenly you're 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 talking about them as heroes. What's going on? And he said, Well, if Hitler was to invade hell, I should make at least a favourable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. And so so it is that Big Sam <laughs> has joined forces with Raymond Verheyen. Raymond Verheyen, the outspoken Dutch fitness trainer, who uh, goes on Twitter uh, to crit criticize various managers when a bunch of their players get injured. Um, now, Verheyen, I have to say, is, for instance, Craig Bellamy is a, a player who had, had bad uh, problems with injuries, swears by Raymond Verheyen, essentially this guy, I wish I'd met this guy, you know, or someone with these ideas 10 years earlier in my career. It would have been a very different story. You never would have heard of Pele. Well, you would have, but it would have been Bellamy and Pele and Messi, you know, at the, essentially that, that he, he says this guy is really, really good and he helped, helped him a lot. 
Uh, others, you know, not so keen. I mean, the reason I mentioned Big Sam and, and Verheyen being enemies, I mean, we were talking about Big Sam's book the, just the other day. He's got a little bit in Verheyen in there. I, I used to tease Gary Speed about his his uh, fitness trainer. Uh, it seemed to me whenever Wales won, because Verheyen used to work for Wales, whenever they won, it, he would, you know, take all the credit. And whenever they lost, he'd mysteriously go missing. I, I, used, to, I, I used to talk to Speedo and say, listen... Got to get rid of that guy. It's all about him. Um, then he mentions the fact that after uh, Gary Speed passed away, uh, Raymond Verheyen only a couple of days later touted himself for the Wales job, which Big Sam didn't think was a classy move. Right. And he put that uh, he put that all on the record. Uh, but now they find themselves very much in agreement on Jurgen Klopp, uh, which is to say that uh, Jurgen Klopp has uh, just didn't get it really. He doesn't get the Premier League. Um, so why are all these... So there's six Liverpool players with hamstring injuries at the moment. Coutinho, Lovren, Skirtle, Rossiter, Sturridge. Who's the other one? Yeah, you're doing all right. That's, that's uh, I can't even remember who the other one is. <laughs> but um, uh, not a player who's played a huge amount this season. We'll, we'll try and find that out. But anyway... Um, why is this happening? Why are so many players all getting hamstring injuries? Liverpool are top of the injury table which nobody wants to be top of. They've got 10 at the moment. Newcastle also have 10. Um, Aldice says, that is him, Klopp, asking his players to play a high-tempo pressing game from the top end. The top end, high up the field, I guess he means. It's great that the players have been able to carry it out, uh, but I think fatigue has kicked in now. I don't think Jürgen has realised just how ferocious our league is at this period of time. And because he's asked for that extra high energy, that extra 10 yards, these lads are fatiguing now with so many games in such a short period of time and picking up these muscle strains. They're highly trained athletes more than ever before and they become more success- susceptible to injuries by the amount of work they do in a game now. So this is um, essentially Liverpool's players are getting injured because of the way that Klopp is asking them to play. But that's just big Sam. What does Raymond Verheyen have to say about all this? Well, Raymond Verheyen... Raymond Verheyen's point about this is, quite, is interesting, I think, and bears a little bit of thinking about. He says... Uh, first of all, he pointed out that he had said uh, back in December, watch out for an injury crisis. Uh, so he said, it will be interesting... This is 23rd of December. Not that long ago, by the way. Uh, it will be interesting to keep an eye on Liverpool in the upcoming weeks as they are about to hit an injury crisis under new manager Klopp. And then he, so he retweets himself today. He says, The Liverpool injury crisis was predictable as manager Klopp failed to anticipate on very obvious external factors. External factor one. Before Klopp arrived, Liverpool were already struggling with injuries. This in itself is something Klopp could not change. External factor two. In November and December, Liverpool had to play an incredible number of games. This in itself is something Klopp could not change. They did have to play a lot of games. They were playing uh, in the Europa League so there's, you know, they played the maximum number of games in that, played obviously all their league games, League Cup. They played the maximum number of games they could have played. Uh, more than, I mean, I, I guess if you look around Europe, you're not going to find too many teams who play. They've probably played more games than anybody, given that most of the other leagues are, you know, the other leagues have a winter break. So he says, uh, uh, with his UEFA study, Professor Jan Ekstrand has shown a strong correlation between the appointment of a new manager and an increase in injuries. External factor three... Players want to prove themselves too much for a new manager, resulting in injuries. Again, something Klopp could not change. Klopp had no influence on these external factors, but he should have anticipated on these factors by by adapting his methods to the situation. Given the injuries in many games in a short period of time, the last thing a manager should do is introduce a more demanding playing style. He should have waited until the injuries were solved and the busy fixture period out of the way before introducing the demanding pressing game. However... Despite the injuries in many games, Klopp decided to immediately implement the demanding pressing game he used to play with Dortmund. Then he has some stats showing they're, they're running, you know, they're, they're running like six kilometers more and doing about 70 more sprints a game than they were under Brennan Rogers. 70, that's 548 to 474 to give you an idea of mm. the percentage increase. So um, he says... Uh, Klopp's pressing games means the Liverpool players have to make more sprints. Consequently, the pressing Liverpool players all of a sudden develop much more fatigue during the game compared to previous playing style. This was a massive error of judgment by Klopp as he knew Liverpool had to play more games than any other Premier League team in November or December. As a result of Klopp's mistake, Liverpool players developed more fatigue during games. He's kind of said that already. 
Uh, and it, as accumulation of fatigue is one of the biggest reasons for muscle injuries, the current injury crisis was easy to predict a few weeks ago. Therefore, one does not have to be Einstein to understand the introduction of the pressing style was a massive error of judgment by Klopp. So, the Liverpool injury crisis has nothing to do with Klopp's training methods, but with introduction of new playing style at wrong moment. External factors are not the reason for injuries. Rigid coaches failing to anticipate on these external factors are the reason for injuries. However, in football, it's still possible to get away with mistakes by blaming external factors and distracting attention away from real reason. So that was a series of tweets by Raymond Verheyen. Oh, I thought that was a blog. Oh, no, that's that's one of the... I mean, they're talking about bringing in a 10,000 character limit on Twitter. What do you think think about that? Well, I mean... But apparently you will still only see the initial 140 characters and then you'll yeah. get an option to read more sort of thing and then yeah. you can go to the 10,000. That probably, that probably makes, makes sense, I suppose. I mean, it'll save people having to do, do that, what we've just seen there. But, okay, so, so this, is, this is interesting now. Both of them are essentially making the same point that this, this is about style of play in the games. They're not, it's not a question... Of, if you remember, Raymond Verhaen has has criticised managers before... Louis van Gaal, Arsene Wenger, David Moyes, particularly uh, when Moyes was at Manchester United. Um, the Moyes criticism and the van Gaal criticism were slightly different from this. What he was saying in, in both of those cases was that the training methods are wrong. Yeah. Prehistoric training methods. Because he always, he couches things in a manner which is, I imagine, gets the backup of the people who he's criticising. David Moyes, for instance, said, I don't even know this guy. David Moyes knew David, David Moyes knew exactly who he was. Um, prehistoric dinosaur, all this kind of stuff. It's you know, it's a little irritating. Uh, but essentially, that their training was wrong. Whereas this is a, in this, he's saying what they're doing in the matches is wrong. But this is this is maybe where, you, where you, what you run into here is the difference between the goals of a manager and a fitness trainer. So a fitness trainer wants everybody to be fit. doesn't want his players to get injured. A manager, what does a manager want? To win matches. To win matches, right? So it's not the same thing. It's, there's, a, there's a gap between what they both want. Now, what Verheyen is saying here is that Jurgen Klopp should have essentially changed his whole idea about football in order to preserve his players, you know, in order to minimize the risk because it is still just minimizing the risk. I mean, he's talking about it's it's all these injuries are 100% avoidable. They're not. You know, they're, they're still going to get the odd. It's just there is it, you're talking about minimizing risk rather than totally scrubbing out the risk of injury. Um but in order if you minimize if you if you adopt a style which is designed to go a bit easier on your players, then what you're doing is making I mean, if this is if if you believe this is the way that that you can be most if that your team can be most effective is by uh, working hard by outrunning the opponent in certain respects in certain areas of the field um, by by giving more physically. And then you suddenly say, well, listen, actually, let's not do we'll that. Hold off on that for the time being. Let's hold off on that because our, some of our players might get injured. You see, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Yeah, either, uh, either, you know, your ideas about the game are wrong. I mean, the point is that, okay, you might minimize the risk of injuries, but you increase the risk of losing. You know what I mean? Because you're playing against a bunch of uh, teams in the Premier League like, who are not going to go easy on you. You know, it's not like it's not like everybody is going. Oh, you know, our hamstrings are a little bit dodgy. We've got to play the 26, the 28. Could you imagine, say, that Manchester City game when Liverpool hammered Man City, with Liverpool going off the throttle by say five percent? Which it seems to be Brian is is advocating that it's not just well, you know, he's also, it's play a totally different type of game where you're not pressing. To that extent, you're not running those those kilometers, and of course there are drawbacks to this club um, this club plan. But a game like that, for example, they just w- they would probably could have been reversed that scoreline if they'd got in with that sort of attitude, which wouldn't have exactly endeared Klopp to his players. No, um, I don't. I don't think so. And you know, he's a, he's a manager who's coming in uh, to a club in mid season wants to make a good initial impact, wants to make a good impression on the players, the supporters. You know. Wants to wants to start wants to start well. I mean, yeah, imagine the wooliness of a manager coming in in the middle of a season and saying, "Here is my plan for how we want to play football." 
but but it's we'll too, start it's that too difficult January. for your delicate hamstrings. We're, we're going to have we're, what we're going to do is play entirely differently, and then once the fixtures ease, ease up, which by the way is when do. when we get knocked out of everything. <laughs> when, when, once we get knocked out of the cups and Europa League, then it'll be like. We can, we're finally on the home straight. We can coast in in eighth place in the league. Uh, everyone will be fit as a fiddle as they head off on their holidays. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> looking perfect, looking, looking uh, summer beach ready for their holidays. Yeah, so it's, it's, it just, I, I, I mean, okay, I think uh, for a fitness trainer, this is the kind of argument that they should be making. You know, everyone's, everyone, all the decision makers in the club, the staff are all sitting around the table going, oh, fitness trainer is supposed to, he's like the minister with responsibility for injuries. But, sir, we can't do this. Don't you realize that if we do this, all our players' handshakes are going to blow? And the manager is essentially saying, yes, and you can't make a Premier League omelette without breaking a few hamstrings. hamstrings. So, uh, While we're on Big Sam, uh, I should mention that we, we got an email uh, after the Big Sam special on Monday from uh, David Patrick Kalman. Uh, so I, I was discussing the relative enjoyment of going out for a swift half with Big Sam versus, you know, yeah. four or five pints. So David uh, writes, First of Kieran's question regarding Big Sam, I can confirm that despite the apparent minusculity, not a word, but nevertheless, yeah. of the drink Big Sam dwarfs here in the attached photograph, he does not do things by half. <laughs> the, the photo, by the way, is of Big Sam holding a half. No, it's a, holding a pint. Is it, it just looks like a half Really? Because of his gigantic hands. Because I, I thought that's a point, and then I thought, no, he can't be that big. Yeah, no. I've no, seen him, and he's big, but he's nobody's that big. No, I've seen big men make a make a point like a half. Small, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. However, I can report that BS, big Sam, uh, did seem somewhat perplexed to find himself upstairs in our bar student indie night at which I was working, as a mass of frankly sweaty adolescents thronged about this colossus to the strains of MGMT. He maintained a bemused calm. Despite being clearly more accustomed to the likes of lilies on a Saturday, uh, Sam retained his good humour, whispering lustily to me, this photo's going to break the effing internet with a Cheshire grid. It was the time of the Kardashian uh, right. pic, with which Sam was evidently well acquainted. However, tragically, Sam evaporated as quickly as he'd appeared, apparently off to enjoy some Fergie time in coppers. Uh, so thank you for that email, David. <laughs> oh, big Sam. Now, I'd say he was, he was well at home in that environment. Um, but look, that uh, the, okay. So, the, so what are we what are we saying here? Uh, the other the other thing I think to keep in mind on this is that something we've spoken about before in relation to Klopp in particular and certain other managers. Jose Mourinho would be another one. And if you if you if you go back, you can find uh, examples of of these managers who have the approach towards injured players of ignoring and ostracizing them. Oh yeah. Well this goes to back them. to the Shankly days, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course that when in the case of Shankly, you know, it's you, you, you read about that and you're like, oh it's terrible, isn't it? You know, surely it wouldn't be like that now. Actually a lot of managers still do that. Mm. So because you don't want they don't want Daniel Sturridge is an example of of a player who seems to get injured an awful lot and oftentimes the the sort of physios are scratching their heads going, <laughs> We're not sure exactly what's wrong this time. And Klopp said something about Sturridge earlier in the season, which suggested that he saw it at least as partly a psychological problem. He has to tell the difference between between serious pain and just pain, real pain and just pain, something like that. And and also, you know, essentially that if you create a sort of culture where players are encouraged to feel injuries, you know, it's encouraged to be aware of, then. What's going to happen is a lot of players are going to tell you that they're injured. Whereas if you create a situation where the injured guy doesn't exist, an injured player might as well no longer be a professional footballer. I mean, it certainly isn't a member of the club. Then it's a psychological barrier. I mean, essentially, uh, the argument that these managers would use, and I've seen Klopp make this argument before when he was a Dortmund manager, when he sometimes faced similar criticism player oh you seem to have a lot of injured players maybe you're asking them to do a bit too much out there it's essentially it's mind over matter you know players are always, you know you it's the same thing players are always injured there isn't there is no such thing as a 100% fit footballer they're always injured they've got to get out there and do it this yeah is but a, you can't get out there and do it with a ruptured hamstring but just no. so, so final point on this are you in the Klopp camp are you in the Verheyen Allardyce well I think Verheyen you know you know, as I said there are there are people who have worked with Verheyen who say that he's good and he knows what he's talking about you know I'm not going to question his professional credentials but I do 
question in this instance, if given that he's talking about something that happens in the games, and he's not talking about a kind of a training method which is like antiquated or shouldn't they shouldn't be training this way, but he's talking about the way they play in the actual games. Like this is what they this is what the club is there to do. I don't really see how you can prioritize injury prevention to such a, a level as to abandon your principles of, of the game. You know, I mean, maybe there is a problem. Maybe there is a problem with the way, maybe he's asking too much of his players. That could that could be the case. But in that case, Verheyen's argument is inconsistent. Um, you know, that should be the argument he's making. This style of play is, is too much. You're asking for player burnout. No, you know, players, human players, can't be expected to compete this way. It shouldn't be a case of, what what he's actually saying, which is, oh, once the busy period's out of the way, then then yeah, go that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, you know whether there is a, a problem with the moment, I don't know, but I think the the priority has to be the the games. How are we going to win the games? If players get injured, that's just the cost that you're going to have to accept. That's why you've got a squad. That's Event why you employ twenty five of these guys and not you know uh, twelve or thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. Eventful game, uh, Barcelona last night. Barcelona Espanyol. It was Espanyol took the lead. Barcelona equalised almost immediately. Messi scored an amazing free kick. Mm -hmm. uh, set up a brilliant goal for Neymar. Uh, Pau Lopez, the Espanyol goalkeeper, ground his studs into the ankle of the prone Leo Messi. In well, I'm not sure. <laughs> He's obviously um, a kind of a risk-taking type of guy. To to do that to Messi at this at this point in Messi's career, ooh, you you'd have to be a brave man, in my opinion. Maybe this was why Luis Suarez uh, lost the rag. Luis Suarez, uh, who's been as good as gold since arriving at Barcelona, well, give or take the odd, you know, grinding his studs into the you know feet or legs of you know an opponent. It's just give and take, rough and tumble of the game. Uh, waited. Uh, uh, to shout, to scream like a fishwife at the Espanol players, you're a bag of rubbish. You're number one, not a bag of rubbish. And uh, this is in the tunnel, and it was all it all went into the referee's report. So maybe he's going to get in trouble for that. Now it's unclear exactly who he was waiting for, but he had been involved in a uh, a little set to one of the Espanol players, uh, Papa Cule Diop, who was sent off uh, in the 75th minute for swearing which doesn't happen very often, I don't think. But uh, Diop had apparently told Suarez, I shit on your whore mother, which is one of those things that sounds absolutely awful until you realize it's basically the equivalent of bloody hell in Spanish. Um, maybe a little maybe a little beyond. Yeah, there. I would have thought. Well, but a it's, little beyond bloody it's hell. Just one, it's not like, I mean, if you just say it in English, it would sound like a really weird, like you've put a lot of thought into, into that bizarre turn of phrase. But in Spanish, it's just... Let me paint a picture for you. <laughs> That's kind of what it sounds like in English. In, in Spanish, it's just a uh, it's just a thing people say yeah. when they want to tell each other where to go. Mm. Um, it's actually a compliment in that culture. Well, it's 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 definitely rude, but you know, it's it's not like um, it's just a it's just like a swear phrase, not like a um, you know a, a one off a, a, per, a personally a bespoke uh, insult. Mm -hmm. He says. Um, but Diop said afterwards, we both insulted each other. He said swear words to me and me to him, and I get sent off. The referee told me he didn't hear us both, only me. Uh, the press have spent all week saying we're violent. This has had its effect. Well, they had two red cards, and they did have this grinding into the ankle of Messi. Um, maybe they felt they had to play up to the image. But he said, Barcelona's players are really good, and if you can't even touch them... They do what they want. But you can't say we were violent. There wasn't any blood. If we'd wanted to, the Barca players would have gone off in stretchers. Mm. So quite macho there from uh, Diop. Uh, but he obviously feels he's been the victim of an injustice there. That's it for today's Report on Sport. Supreme talent. He 
launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked as the porter. Manchester City defeated last night at Goodison Park. Gabriele Mercati, and now that Guardiola has confirmed his intention to move to the Premier League, I think we're only really waiting on the timing of the announcement that he's going to manage City here. So the question to you is, is there a lame duck effect now with Manuel Pellegrini? Um, I think uh, it's, I mean, I think, look, it's, it's inevitable, I think, in any, in any place of work, not just football. Um, and I think... I actually had a huge argument uh, over this on, uh, on the show I do on ESPN with, uh, with the likes of Steve Nichol, um, who disagreed with me. I think it's going to be the same thing with Pep Guardiola uh, at Bayern. Um, it's just the dynamic, the dynamic changes. That said, I think Pellegrini is probably better equipped uh, to deal with it than, than others simply because of of the way his personality is, he's more of a player's coach. Um, you know, he's, he's he's more pragmatic in that sense. But uh, but yeah, it is definitely something that you know will affect you to some degree. What do you think of what Pep is doing at the moment? So, do you see a bit of a LeBron sort of influence in his? <laughs> it, do you, I mean, I, I can't remember a coach sort of doing this before. Yes, I'm going. Yes, I'm going somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where that is yet, but I'm sure you know. I'm taking my talents to Manchester City. Yeah, is what I'm waiting for next. Well, I, I can totally remember it, and it was Pep Guardiola the last time around when he was in when he was in New York, and uh, you know, living there on the upper west side looking out over Central Park West and the whole world was trying to figure out where he was going to go next uh, and then he shocks everybody by taking Bayern so uh, look I, I think you know I, I wrote about this we're at peak pep right he's the answer to everybody's issues and everybody's problems you know he's seen as the guy who can fix anything and it really is I think remarkable um, and, and it's something that you know, I people are far more clever than me. I, I, I'd love it if you, you know, you locked really some really clever people in a room, gave them all the tools from research to to analytics to psychology, and they really could figure out exactly what the marginal gains of a manager, um, you know, what marginal gains a manager really brings. Because, and I'm just going to throw this out there, and obviously Pep set up the great Barcelona side and whatever else, you know. It, it's not lost on anybody that at Barcelona, when you know after Pep left, they hired his, they, they promoted his assistant, who the late Tito Villanova would never coach before, and uh, um, you know he, he won the league with a hundred points, uh, setting a record points total. And then a couple years after that, they hire a guy in Luis Enrique, who you know only had two years of, of coaching um, in the top flight under his belt, and. You know, was seen as a bit of a failure in, in at Roma, and you know, finished mid table at Celta Vigo, and the guy goes and wins the treble. So it, it is, it's a source of I think of, of endless debate. You know, is it the setup? Is it the players? Um, and how much change can can Pep Guardiola really affect? Yeah, I mean, are you suggesting to us that you would be shorting Pep now? I. <laughs> I, I don't know because I think you know the guy really is brilliant and he may well be the best manager in the world. But I also kind of feel that if you were to bring Pep, you know Pep's not an instant fix. If you bring Pep into a deeply dysfunctional club um, or or poorly run club, you know I, I don't know that you know he could just snap his finger and bring and, and bring instant success. I think it's I think it's a process. And to me, it's curious how. You know, in the modern game, you, I think there is such a thing as, as the better run clubs at club level, from chief executive to director of football to scouting. Um, and, and those are the clubs that can, you know, that can withstand change better than others. I, I, I look at you know, Swansea and, and, and Southampton, who obviously changed managers and, and maintained a level of, of consistency. And, and yet... You know, for the biggest clubs, it seems to me, you know, we need to have the the superstar coach, you know, and, and whether it's Pep or, or, or Ancelotti or whatever, we almost imbue these people with, with sort of, you know, mystical powers. So it's, it's, it's a curious dichotomy, I think. Is that kind of the Premier League's problem in a nutshell, though, the, the fact that um, the league is so wealthy um, 
that it actually promotes a kind of conservatism, especially from the people who are charged with handling these clubs. Someone in Ed Woodward's position, uh, for instance, feels like there are almost there are very few managers out there he can actually hire. I mean, there's there's loads of guys, presumably working around the the world of football, who have the talent, uh, who who do have the capacity to be great managers of Manchester United. But unfortunately, there are only like three guys uh, who Ed Woodward might actually be willing to risk hiring because he's thinking, well, you know, I mean, you, you, you talk to me about this Thomas Tuchel guy. I hear that he's, I hear he's great. I hear great things about this Roger Schmidt. But at the end of the day, who is Roger Schmidt? <laughs> you know, who is this guy? It's really only Pep Guardiola, Jose Mourinho. Giggs. Or Ryan Giggs, a familiar, <laughs> a familiar face, who I can hire. That that it's the money actually promotes this kind of uh, deadening conservatism among the, the the bigger the club, the more conservative they get. Yeah, I mean, look, I think United, in some ways, there are other factors, and I think you know it is, you know, football wise, it, it's it's a paradigm of how I think not to do things um, ever since Sir Alex retired. Uh, you know, commercially, obviously, you know, all the kudos in the world. Um, and, and I do think, though, that, that clubs are realizing this. I mean, you know, Manchester City isn't just a club with a manager and a paycheck. They have, you know, they, they've got this incredible academy. They've got tremendous scouting. Um, they got a director of football and a chief executive who they thought were going to be really, really good. Um, you can kind of go through Chiki Bagiristein's transfers at Barcelona and at City and maybe come to the conclusion that, you know, maybe he's not brilliant. But the point is they recognize this. They created a structure. They worked at it. They backed their people. Um, I think uh, Chelsea certainly as well uh, have done the same thing. Um, so I, I think clubs are realizing this. It's just that on top of that, you know, they feel they feel the need of, of getting the manager who will put them over the top will be the difference maker you know they think that that's the that's the missing link and i think it also to some degree takes pressure off the people who hire them right because you know if i'm oh if completely, I'm, completely that's the thing it's, yeah. it's 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 a case of like well don't blame me i i hired you know Jose Mourinho. chelsea are a good example of it chelsea are, are the uh chelsea's last two managers have been previous managers you know i mean hitting was there before Mourinho was there they're, they're kind of caught caught in this recursive loop now the the pool of of managers they can hire i mean there was there was talk of maybe ancelotti maybe we could get ancelotti back like the pool of managers is so small because these premier league clubs are hiring managers i mean like guardiola i guess on the basis of the work they've already done as opposed to the work they think they're capable of doing yeah it's like when you go and you you, you buy uh you know you you buy stocks right you know past performance isn't necessarily indicative of future results um, I think that's the challenge. I, I I think there's so many basic nuts and bolts things a club can do to give themselves a good setup, which I think are are just as important. And, you know, the obvious the obvious one of having good players, which we all know about. But you know, the, those other factors: uh, a solid director of football, a good, uh, you know, or recruitment consultant, or whatever you want to call them, um, uh, a, a good. Uh, a good environment, a good atmosphere, you know, um, obviously commercial success, treating the fans well, um, scouting, youth development, you know, all these things I think are often, are often as important, um, as, as the manager, because I, I think the, you know, the marginal gains from having somebody aren't necessarily aren't necessarily that great and i'll go back to this look i you know the the team that was on the verge of winning the treble last year in europe juventus they hired max allegri who you know isn't a bad manager uh by any stretch but you know had wasn't regarded as as a genius by anybody and you know his big thing was he came in and he built on the work of his of his predecessor and kind of managed egos and was a little more laid back and you know, boom, he came within 90 minutes of winning the treble. Have you said that the uh, you reckon that Manchester United has been the supreme example of how not to do things in football sense since Alex Ferguson resigned? Um, is that Would the appointment of the legendary club player be the next step in that mismanagement, do you think? Well, if you're talking about Ryan Giggs, oh, yeah. uh, 
look. <coughs> well, maybe I mean, Paul, maybe Paul Scholes. I don't know. There could be a real bow from the blue, but Gary Neville. We'll, 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 st- we'll, we'll stick with gigs for the purposes of the question. Yeah. I mean, look. If you bring in gigs without a director of football with a or or director of football type with a football vision, um, you're going to run into the same issues you you have before when it comes to recruitment, which means you're going to overpay for players, you're going to uh, make poor decisions, uh, you're going to sell badly, you're basically going to let agents um, run all your transfer business for you. Um, that's that's just the reality of it. And that's without getting into whether Giggs is actually a good coach, whether he's good at motivating players, whether he has a tactical vision, whether he's good as match day management. I honestly don't know. A, I'm not going to judge him on four games. He brought you know? chips back to the canteen. Remember, Gabby? You were talking about the importance of a good atmosphere. Ryan Giggs restored chips to the Manchester United canteen to make the players feel better about themselves when David Moyes left. Do you remember that? I, I, I remember Players were delighted. I, I, I wonder about that because you know what? Like the only people who really get excited about eating chips for lunch among professional athletes, and I say this with the utmost respect, are English players. <laughs> and I I don't know other than like Wayne Rooney, I can't imagine Michael Carrick eats a lot of chips. And I know Chris Smalling is kind of a fitness freak as well, so I seriously doubt he eats fried potatoes. Well, there might be so, Belgian players who like it as well. Chips are very big in Belgium. But here's here's yeah, Marwan Fellaini strikes me as a typical Belgian who who loves his uh, patat mets. Here's your uh, here here's here's a proposal, right? You are Ed Woodward, and and, I'm, and you said okay, Ryan Giggs. I'd be very if, small. It'd be a lot smaller than I am. You are you are Ed Woodward, and you. I'm thinking seriously about appointing Ryan Giggs as manager, but as you've already mentioned your concern. You heard Gabriel Marcotti on this podcast saying, if you appoint Giggs without a director of football, you're asking for trouble, right? So here's your Manchester United dream team. Ryan Giggs, head coach. Uh, Nicky Butt, uh, you know. No, Ryan Giggs, first team. Ryan Giggs, manager. Nicky Nicky Butt, coach. Uh, Paul Scholes, sort of striking coach. Gary Neville, director of football. What yeah, are you thinking look, now? You know what? This is the age of... Look, if, if Gary Neville becomes director of football um, overnight without any particular experience... Apart it, from his 20 years in the game? Right, but none of which have been spent as director of football. Um, look, if, if, if he comes in and he, you know, his first call is to Peter Lim's gang, then no, that's not a good thing for United... But I think Gary Neville's a great example. I, and I was having this conversation with Henry Winter, of all people. Um, I mean, name-dropping. Uh, if th- There's a whole bunch of... This is, this is the problem, I think, in, in football. And this is something footballers really badly. Um, you have... You know, not all... F- some footballers are extremely intelligent. But to a man, especially in England, because of the process that, by which you become a professional footballer... Even the ones who are very, very intelligent, from the age of 16, they basically don't really get any kind of serious academic education at all. And they're put into an environment where, you know, it's, it's sort of this militaristic follow orders uh, type environment where you basically stay 17 forever in many of your, your personal choices. And then they retire, they get their coaching badges where they're still in the same kind of environment. And then people ask, like, well, why are there more footballers on the FIFA's executive committee? Why are there more footballers at the FA? It's not because these people are are not intelligent, because some of them are really, really intelligent. It's just that they haven't had the experience or the schooling or the coursework, you know, to to go and and know how to do a negotiation, to know how a contract works, to have the the basic legal background, the basic business background. Uh, to go uh, uh, to the basic media background in in some cases. I mean, you see some of these people in front of the camera, and and, and you want to cringe. But Gary Neville now, surely is the exception to everything you've been saying. I mean, he's he's got all his professional qualifications. He's he's running you know Salford City's business. He's redeveloping hotels. He's got in front of the camera. He's got more pies than he has fingers to to stick into the pies. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, uh, I've never uh, seen you, such a busy I'll tell you what, figure. Gary Neville is an outlier because he's obviously a very very bright guy, but. If there had been a course, if Gary Neville had been given the opportunity to to go to university or to go and do an MBA, 
um, or or whatever, you know, towards the latter years of his career in his spare time. If there was a framework for that, which made it compatible to uh, with, with with what he was doing, he today would be much much better equipped to face the job. Now, like I said he's a bright guy. He's he's a guy who teaches himself, but there's many others who fall through who who fall who fall through the cracks. Like I. I met a guy, I, there, there, there's a footballer, and I won't name him, uh, who, who is managing, actually, it's in the lower leagues, so I don't even know if he's managing now, but he was managing last season, and he's managed three different lower leagues clubs. He's recently retired. And, you know, he's a chatty guy, he had a reputation, he played in the Premier League, reputation is a guy who was feisty and, and quick-witted and whatever. I met him, he thought that the Benelux was one country, and that, um, you know, Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg were like Scotland, Wales, and England. I mean, he really believed this. And I'm asking myself, if I'm the owner of a football club, would I want somebody like that going, you know, with access to my money, with access to the till, to, 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 make, to make decisions, to relate to other people? You know, this is, this is, I think, one of the problems that you run into. And, and this is where I think footballers are let down. Um, I, seriously, I, if I had the resources... I would start some sort of program. I would have footballers apply. I'd take the 10 smartest guys and I'd send them on a two-year program where they go to serious, uh, you know, serious universities, serious academic institutions, and they learn uh, about analytics. They learn about, uh, about organizational management. They learn about law. They learn about business. They learn all these things. And then I might have a generation of people who, who could really, you know, who could combine their own footballing experience with the tools to make a difference. I don't know, Gav. I think Gary Neville, for instance, has, has probably been to every country in Europe a number of times, uh, watched enough World Cups to know that Belgium and Holland are different, <laughs> different countries. I think the real reason that you don't want to hire Gary Neville is that you're worried he's going to have your job. Oh, yeah, he's going to have Ed Woodward's job. Yeah, you're still Ed Woodward in this. Yeah, uh, you're, 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 you're thinking, I'm just worried my team of rivals is maybe a little bit too high-powered and ambitious. I'm just kind of wondering what, what chance for little old Ed in, in among all these big hitters. That might actually be the main reason why I'm not uh, super keen on, on hiring Gary Neville to a position of, of power. Listen, little old Ed has got nothing to worry about as long as he continues making United or keeping United as a profitable club and signing those enormous commercial deals. That's what he's really, really good at. Um, and he's still, he's still the boss of the club. If he signs somebody who is better at him uh, at negotiating deals for footballers and dealing with uh, and acting as a buffer between uh, you know, the manager and the first team and the manager and uh, the, the, the outside world of the manager and the board, which is what you know, a director of football type uh, role is all about, then United will be much more successful on the pitch and that will drive more commercial success and then he'll be even more successful and his job will be even more se uh, secure. Um, I think it's as simple as that. If he continues down the road he's on and he keeps making, you know, screwy decisions with, with, with his managers, screwy decisions, uh, you know, with his briefings to the media, uh, screwy decisions with his signings and United, you know, keep, going fourth, you know, finishing fourth or fifth or whatever, and then he comes out and he keeps telling us, oh, no, but look, we're in the Champions League. Oh, look, it's a process. It's a, it's a three-year deal, you know. Like, the fact of the matter is, if, if we believe the line coming out that Louis van Gaal will remain manager until uh, June 2017, and then he's going to walk away because he promised it to his wife, uh, and United are still fourth, then you're in a situation where <laughs> it will have been four years, and you'll still be well behind where you were. So, from that perspective, it'll be a failure, and surely Woodward must be mindful of that. All right, Gabriele Mercati slash Ed Woodward, thanks very much. My pleasure. All right, really interesting chat there with Gabriele Kim, but I want to take it to the most pertinent point of it, and that is the bringing of chips back by Ryan Giggs to the um, canteen at Old Trafford. Do we know what type of chips? Because this is important. Uh, like, are we talking, talking full-on cooked-in-a-chip-pan, deep-fat fryer kind of thing? Oven chips, arguably, unarguably healthier. Are maybe even, maybe even sweet potato fries, again. Not, not bad at all. Ah, uh, no, they're not chips. No one's fooled by that. But what if they're cut like chips, you know? Ah, uh, 
doesn't work. Not for me, Owen. Not for me. <laughs> no, not for you, no. Not unless you fry the absolute bejesus out of them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's they're half just oh, crispy that's your car- caramelized goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'd, no co- no I, I think probably fat, probably fat chips. I, for yeah. some reason, I just imagine fat chips. I think because I'm, I'm just imagining kind of old canteens. Mm-hmm. When the Manchester United canteen is almost certainly nothing like that. Um, I'd say it's probably classy enough operation these days. Gabriele, not a, sorry, go on, yeah. I saw, I don't know if you saw last night, on, I had Sky on last night and mm-hmm. it was just playing away in the background as it does or whatever and they had then this thing about Eric Cantona's return. You probably, they probably show it like loads of times. Right. They had Gary Pallister on as a talking head. You know? His return. The return of the king, I think it was called. Cantona. Against Liverpool after oh, yeah. the nine months. Well, they, they kind of showed loads of, they kind of showed him signing for United and then mm-hmm. the, it was kind of like a little history of his career really but for some reason the return of the king and uh, yeah Gary Pallister those ambassadorial roles can sometimes be tough <laughs> Nicky Butt I have to say looks fitter now than when he was a player he is obviously a complete fitness fanatic like mm-hmm. he's probably doing Ironmans and all this kind of stuff but um, Pally now would be the other extreme let's say well Gabriele uh, doesn't seem to be a fan of Ryan Giggs as manager certainly without any director of football or advice from the top as Zidane Zidane certainly won't be short of advice from the top of Real Madrid as he sets about starting his managerial career right into the deep end Sid Lowe is ready to go Sid just before we talk Zizou uh, we hear that you made a guest appearance over the Christmas period on the most venerable of all British television shows uh, yeah, I suppose you could put it like that. Some would say I made a guest non-appearance, but, uh, but there we go. It was, uh, I don't know if fun is quite the word, but it was, it was certainly an experience. Uh, how did you get on? It was a university challenge for those, uh, for, I, I can't believe any of our listeners wouldn't be aware of this, Sid, but you're on university challenge representing your alma mater. Yeah, exactly, I'm um, representing Sheffield, and, and, and actually the, the, the team did rather well. I, I don't really want to give away any spoilers, but I imagine it's a bit late to not worry about things like that. Yeah. Uh, we, we actually made it to the final, um, although at this stage, uh, my ambition to be Jimmy Traore was dashed at the last. Um, that is, of course, being a European champion because of the talent of his teammates. All right, let's, uh, let's structure this chat like the Florentino Perez press conference on Monday. We'll devote a couple of sentences well, to Rafa. questions at all, you mean? Yeah, well, I was, yeah, was going to say a, a couple of sentences on Rafa before moving on to the way more exciting figure of Zinedine Zidane here. Um, like, you know, the Benitez thing, it all seemed inevitable from the very start. We all just, everybody seemed to see it as bad fit. Was it inevitable or could anything have been done by Benitez? Could he have done anything to actually make it work there? Well, I mean, it, it's hard, isn't it, to, to kind of look back and, and, and say that it would have worked had you done this. But I think one of the regrets that Benitez will have, um, quite honestly, is that he will probably feel that he got sacked with someone else's ideas. If he was going to be sacked, at least let it be doing what he really believes in. Um, I think he came into the club making too many compromises from the start. Benitez, we've always seen, is, is theoretically at least a very uncompromising kind of manager who wants control of, of very small details, some of which, personally, I think, uh, a pointless. I think he obsesses himself with, with, with minute details that he doesn't need to. But at Real Madrid, I think he accepted some of the impositions too early. I think it was then very difficult for him to, to kind of go back on that. And, and I think, in a way, he, he was a very bad fit from the start. And, and you know, it's, it's easy to say, ah, oh, we knew at the start. But the, the very day he was, he was appointed, I remember having, having a, a well, a meeting, I suppose, a meeting to make it sound overblown, but, but being with a, a handful of other journalists and all of us saying, this this is going to be a disaster. This really could end very badly, very quickly. Um, because part of it was because, of course, he followed Carlo Ancelotti. And, 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 and forgive me if I've, if I've used this analogy before, certainly I've used it in, in print before, but, but Rafa Benitez was a stepmother. You know, the players loved Carlo Ancelotti. Whoever followed him was going to be in, in, in trouble. And if on top of that it was someone who came in and instead of fighting for the, the player or the children's affections, if you like, did the complete opposite, came in, was a disciplinarian, was seen as heavy going, was seen as, as, as kind of not particularly likable in, 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 in purely personal terms, never mind the, the, the coaching quality or whatever it may be. And then, then I think it was always likely to break down. But as I say, part of the problem was that actually Benitez swallowed some of the club in positions, and that, I think, made him an authoritarian without authority. It, it made it even harder for him to then impose the things that he would normally do. Had he been himself, had he been allowed to be himself, would it have ended differently? Difficult to know, but at least he might have felt that he died with his own boots on. So, if Benitez was the wicked stepmother, is Zinedine Zidane like the cool uncle in Roger Dodger? 
I think there's an element of that. I think there is an element of that. I also think that you've got to look at Zidane, as you do with, with most appointments, I think, at Real Madrid, in political terms as well. Uh, and that was seen in the press conference on Monday. It's as if Benitez doesn't exist. He's been forgotten already. This is a way of, of, of changing the atmosphere around the club. And in that sense, of course, it's been a, a, a very sensible move, a, a very logical move. It's a way of protecting the, the club at institutional level, i.e. fundamentally the president. Um, it's a way of bringing someone in who the players in theory at least, should embrace. Bringing someone in that the fans automatically do embrace. Bringing someone in that, that feels like the club all of a sudden has that sense of, of hope and excitement again. Even though, of course, we don't really yet know how good a coach he, he really is. And, and to put it, to put it in, in, in simplistic terms, I mean, there was a, a nickname, and we've talked about this before, I'm sure we have, the, the, a nickname that some of the players had for, for Benitez, which was the 10, the number 10. But this is a guy who never played at a high level, yet here he is trying to tell us what to do. But, of course, if you go from that to the guy who really was the number 10, one of the very best number 10s there has ever been, then that immediately resolves that particular problem. Does it resolve other problems? I'm not so sure. The thing about Zidane, Sid, is that he's like one of the most silent and mysterious superstars in football I can ever remember. I have no idea what he thinks about the game. I have no idea what his ideas are. Do you have any idea? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I had a conversation with him a, a, quite a while ago now, actually, about just kind of about where he goes next. But at the time, he was he was basically doing what was, I think it would be fair to describe as an ornamental role at Real Madrid. He was there for his political significance. He was there to just kind of be there, basically. Um, and, and he was starting to get frustrated at that. He was starting to feel like he wanted to do something real. And it, it, it led us down this path, as we were talking in the conversation, about the idea that people had of him as a kind of effortless, um, graceful ballet dancer of a footballer. And that irritated him because he saw himself as much more of a competitor than that, much more uh, aggressive, which, of course, we saw on, on numerous occasions as well, but, but aggressive, committed, a worker, um, a guy who, who made a huge effort, who was very serious about his football in many ways as well, who just happened to be fantastically elegant in the way that he played the game. Um, and I think we also have seen over the years in, in one or two remarks, and, and certainly this came across in the conversation I had with him, um, his awareness that there were big flaws, for example, in the original Galactico model. He retired um, having gone three seasons in a row without winning anything for Real, for Real Madrid. And that was one of the reasons he retired, because he felt a, a level of responsibility for that failure, because he felt that it wasn't perhaps heading the right direction. And so I think this is someone who who doesn't necessarily embrace the, the Galactico model, even if he's seen as the kind of the embodiment of the, the great Real Madrid Galactico. Um, I think we'll see a manager who will want his team to be, and he's talked a little bit about this in the last couple of days, who'll want his team to be quick, he'll want his team to press quite hard on the pitch, he'll want his team to, to attack the other side, but he will want balance. And I think that may well be best expressed in, in the sense that, I'm probably exaggerating here, and so forgive me if I am, I think the player he most admired when he was at Real Madrid was called Macaulay. And, and I think, I think now I know that doesn't mean everything, but I, I think that, that possibly is, is an image of, of, of the way in which he will seek balance as well as talent. Yeah. Well, maybe he can, he's the only guy who can get away with it, like kind of Nixon going to China to stuff the Real Madrid's team with defensive midfielders, and they'd say, well, we can't question Zidane. But the other, he, he I is think that's part of it. I do think that's part of it, and I think that, that will give him an authority both with the players and the fans, and possibly even with the president that others didn't have. Frankly, sacking Benitez was easy, too easy. Um, sacking, sacking Zidane, whatever happens, will not be as easy. He does have a little bit of help as well, Sid, in the form of, uh, well, a friend of yours uh, from the commentary box. I've heard you doing punditry before with Santiago Solari. He seems like a... Well, this is the weird thing, Ken. He's not, he's not, he's not going to have Solari with him. What? It's very, it's, I, I don't know. Um, it's very bizarre. This story emerged on Monday in the afternoon. It's going to be Solari. Um, Solari's going to be working with him, etc. Solari was working at the time with the uh, Cadetes, which I think is the under-16s at Real Madrid level. Um, and then in the press conference on Monday when, when Zidane was presented, there was no information given to us whatsoever, none at all. There was, however, the classic slightly, um, how would I say this, slightly manipulated but theoretically off-the-record chat with Florentino afterwards, in which Florentino Perez said that Solari wasn't going to be the assistant coach. He didn't know where that story had come from, which is, I suppose, because it was one of the few stories that didn't come from him. Um, he didn't know where that had come from, and that wasn't the case. Yesterday, in a press conference, again, we weren't given a rundown of names, but Zidane was asked about the logistics of his, of his backroom staff, and he said, I will have the same staff I had at Castilla, which does not include Solari. Oh, okay. Well, so, uh, so sorry. Disappointing. Sorry, uh, rather, <laughs> slightly rude. Solari must be gutted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Listen, Sid, brilliant stuff. Thank you.
My pleasure. Well, poor old Solari, Ken. You seem stunned by that news. Well, it's just not going to happen. Stunned by my own stupidity. <laughs> uh, no, I just, I, I had heard Solari was coming in and obviously thought, yeah, I said about that. I heard him on with Solari there a couple of times and they're, you know, they, they're chatting away. Now he's, his, it, it'd be like if, if Kenny Cunningham had was the Real Madrid assistant manager now, mm. you know, um, my, my erstwhile commentary partner, uh, teammate, uh, commentary teammate. And, uh, yeah, but it didn't happen. So we're still not that clear on Zidane's managerial philosophy. Well, in fact, Sid has, has given all the information that is out there, and there's no one better to talk about this than Sid. And even at that, it doesn't sound like uh, a blistering plan for... You know, it doesn't sound like I would imagine Pep Guardiola would have sounded like if you'd interviewed him in uh, at the start of his Barcelona raid. Well, I, I no. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we don't underestimate Zidane just because he's never done anything in coaching yet. I mean, he is, apart from coach France, the final of the World Cup in 2006, you know, which was, which was pretty good for a guy doing his first job as a player manager. Yeah. But, uh, the t- I mean, when you look at his career, he, I, I, I imagine that Zidane is unlikely to be much of a Galacticos type guy, even though he was signed as a Galactico by the same president who has now given him the job as coach. Uh, he saw the last few years of his career at club level turn into an embarrassment because, as you know, Sid was saying, he, he was a, someone who understood the value of Claude McAuley. The president didn't got rid of him, just had all these celebrities in the team. And, you know, they ended up getting, getting sort of stomped on by all comers. This was supposed to be a great team and they won almost nothing. He won the Champions League in his first season there and there was barely anything else uh, that they won after that. Uh, I think the league title the following season and that was it mm. um, whereas when uh, when he was successful uh, at club and international level it was always in powerful hard running teams in which he was like the you know the little bit of magic but the French team that he played in was a really athletic team the Juventus team that he played in was super athletic <laughs> super wow super. those guys were athletic they really were they were amazing. Extraterrestrial. They were both, yeah. Not normal. Both yeah. muscular and aerobically fit. It's just a great balance. <laughs> Those guys are not normal. So uh, I think that he's a guy who understands sort of, or who, who understands the value of that side of the game, which hasn't always been something maybe Real Madrid or Paris has been associated with. So maybe maybe he'll be a bit of a, you know, a bit of a Maurizio Pochettino type. I don't know. Murph, I couldn't help but note a bit of the green-eyed monster coming out of you there, and just for the benefit of the listeners, as you heard the news that Sid Lowe was competing on Blackboard ju- or on uh, <laughs> University Challenge. Because my point was going to be, as a Blackboard Jungle legend yourself, this is presumably the Holy Grail is going to University Challenge. Well, never mind you. I, I for one, don't look across the RC for uh, validation. Challenging times with Kevin Myers. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, <laughs> that would have been the dream. Challenging but of course, Kevin, I don't remember this. Do you remember challenging times? Do you not remember it? No. you kidding me? Yeah. Come on. Challenging times. I remember Kevin Myers and the way his hand used to hover over the desk. What was the instructor? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember? Yeah. Was yeah, it a straightforward conceit or was it one of these over, slightly com- over complex? It was like University Challenge, except I think you only had three in, on a team. Okay, well. Uh, a friend of mine won it, actually, Seamus Sweeney. Well done. Well, bloody, bloody right he did. UCD, maybe 97 or something. Yeah, I'd Still be, dining out now. It might have been gone by the time I got to UCG. Of course, also, I was, you know, a different person by the time I went to college. Oh. Yeah, don't need to leave it at that. Well, just leave it at that. Were we, <laughs> were we afraid to shine, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was it, wasn't it? Oh, no. No, no, I was just uh, far too cool oh, for yeah. uh, challenging oh, yeah, times. Yeah. Sitting on the bar still with all the other bar flies, yeah, talking like, about the, uh, yeah, the college bar and UCC. Sitting at the bar still with the bar flies. to a bit stuff. of a crap Irish music, no Ch- doubt. Challenging times on the, on the TV and just yeah, keeping... could have been and me. Then, and then someone switches it over <laughs> to the snooker and... Oh, well, no. <laughs> uh, okay, this, you, is, this, this is good. I now. was ma- mainly a pool shark by the time I, I went to UCG. So. <laughs> if you were listening to Monday's podcast, you'd have heard Ken making the salient observation that there were a lot of very good goals scored in the Premier League last Ooh. weekend. He went on to describe many of these ghouls in detail. And what sounded like it could have made for a banal, repetitive listening turned out to be strangely hypnotic, Murph. I don't know if you agree. Mm. I, was, I was hypnotized by it. My only complaint in the end was that it had to end after only about 10 or 12 goals mm. described. First first entertaining, then boring, and then it got, went back to entertaining the longer it went on. At which point, if you remember, I asked Ken if he'd consider using next Monday's podcast to describe every single goal. Every single goal scored in the Premier League this coming weekend. Now, Alan Pollock got onto me on Twitter to point out that this is, of course, FA Cup third round weekend. So forget <laughs> about the Premier League. Could Ken describe every third round goal next Monday? Now that 
would be a podcast, says Alan. That certainly would be a podcast, Ken. Do you accept the challenge? Well, I guess it saves me having to think of any other ideas. I guess it probably take about... Uh, It'll take quite a while. 40 minutes or so to this. Though, I mean, you, you can. You could earn your podcast stipend in one go. If you, <laughs> oh, no. You do all these. Stop saying that. <laughs> Stop <laughs> saying it. Describe I'm, all these goals. We're, we're, all, we're all engaged in a, in a constant process of learning every day. We're all on a pilgrimage on this earth to do what we can. Hmm. Okay. If you want to hear stipend. if you want to hear about a, a hundred or so goals described, I don't know how many goals are scored in FA Cup uh, third round. We're getting quite a lot, I would say. A lot of teams still left in it at that stage. If you want to hear all those goals described... In a certain amount of detail, tune in next Monday. Uh, if not a massive amount. If of not, detail. skip Monday's podcast. We'll chat to you again uh, later Best on next week. week. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Kent. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Kent. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kent. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.